Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and thanks for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is philosopher and University of San Diego professor Matt Zolinski. Matt was the founder of the Bleeding Heart Libertarians group blog and the author of numerous books, including his latest book, co-authored with John Tomasi, The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Thanks. So my first question is, have you ever not been called last when <laughs> names are called out alphabetically? Yeah, no, there was a girl in high school. I forget her first name, but the last name was Zybura. So it was a Z-Y, With a y. Uh, which is one of the few combinations that'll be to ZW. So more seriously, this is a pretty sweeping intellectual history of libertarianism. Can you just start by giving some personal or intellectual or professional background on how you came to write this book? Yeah, it's been a very long journey, really. I um, I came to libertarianism um, in college, uh, basically at the same time I came to philosophy. I started off in in college as a uh, as a math major. Actually, I, I thought I was going to do computer science, um, and uh, then kind of moved away from that towards political science, thinking I might go to law school instead. And then uh, then I took a an intro philosophy course. Uh, really fell in love with that subject. And a friend uh, had a friend who was another math major at the time who gave me a copy of, uh, of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead uh, and, and told me to read that. And it's a big, thick book. So it sat on my shelf for probably a couple of months before I finally got around to it. But when I did, I, I really fell in love with it. And, um, and then it was off to the races. I started uh, you know, an objectivist club as an undergraduate. Um, you know, I annoyed all my philosophy professors by telling them all the ways in which they were wrong, uh, <laughs> which I had discovered as, you know, an 18 year old, uh, undergraduate. And, uh, and then I pursued these studies in graduate school, you know, in graduate school, I went to the university of Arizona, which had a number of faculty members who were knowledgeable about libertarian ideas, sympathetic, uh, to libertarian ideas, uh, not terribly sympathetic to the Randian version of libertarianism. And so I started to see, uh, some of the objections that smart, sophisticated, and knowledgeable professors would raise against those ideas and and found those persuasive. So uh, I found them persuasive while still thinking there was something importantly right about what Rand was doing. So really, you know, ever since graduate school, I've been going through this process of kind of thinking about libertarianism, what the most defensible version of libertarian thought was, um, which has involved going through various main libertarian thinkers of the 20th century, people like, you know, Friedrich Hayek and Murray Rothbard and Robert Nozick, of course. And then, and then we got to this book, which is an attempt to, to go a little deeper into that process. Uh, you know, I think most people who are libertarians today are familiar with a lot of the names I just gave. They're familiar, that is, with the major 20th century libertarian intellectuals. Uh, but fewer people are familiar with the uh, the earlier 19th century antecedents of those thinkers. Uh, and uh, I think those those thinkers are 
quite important, quite interesting, quite different in a lot of uh, significant ways from the 20th century thinkers. And so I wanted to write a book with John uh, exploring where this idea of libertarianism came from. Why why did you start seeing this idea crop up uh, among different individuals in different countries in the middle of the 19th century? Um, why did it take the form that it did in the 19th century? And why did that change over the course of the 20th century? And where are we now? Um, what's the future of libertarianism look like? All of those questions are sort of, uh, you know, we, we explore the first two of those questions, I guess, in detail in the book. We sort of speculate a bit on the third because that's, that's strictly speaking, not doing history. It's prognostication and I don't have any special skills in that. But I think knowing the history gives us a sense of what the alternatives are in a way that maybe we wouldn't um, if, uh, if we took a narrower view of, of uh, libertarian thought. So you mentioned that you start this uh, this history in the 19th century, but there's obviously this older tradition of classical liberalism that goes back, depending on how you want to date it. David Bose's book, you know, has entries from the Bible and right. Lotso and stuff, but uh, certainly to like John Locke. Uh, how do you think libertarianism differs from this older classical liberal tradition? And why did you decide to start kind of post classical liberal tradition? So, I mean, there's, there's this game that libertarians play, like who is the first libertarian, right? And the, the game is to try to go as far back as you possibly can, right? So it was Jesus or, or Lao Tzu was the first libertarian. And, and, you know, look, there's a sense in which you can find libertarian type insights all over the place um, in, in Lao Tzu. Um, in Jesus, I guess, um, right? Certainly in people like you know, John Locke and Adam Smith and David Hume, who were writing uh, well before the 19th century, uh, these thinkers had insights about uh, the limits of political authority. They had insights about uh, the nature of individual freedom. They had insights about uh, free markets and the significance of free markets. Uh, and all of those ideas are central to libertarianism as, as we understand it. But the approach we take in this book is to argue that something genuinely different did emerge in the 19th century. It drew upon earlier classical liberal thought, certainly you know, figures like Adam Smith and John Locke play an important role in libertarian thinking. But what was different about what happened in the 19th century was that you, you, you had a body of thought emerging that was both more radical and more systematic than the earlier classical liberal thought that had preceded it. So what I mean by that is that um, libertarians were, were more radical than classical liberals. They tended to view these ideas that classical liberals had articulated like individual liberty, like free markets, not merely as you know, sort of important values that we need to take into account and balance against, you know, all these other important values that uh, that matter, politically speaking. No, libertarians tended to hold these views as, as absolutes, right? So individual liberty is not merely one value among others. It is the central value, and there's nothing to balance it against. It's the only thing that matters, and so it's, it's a moral force or its moral weight is um, is absolute, uh, meaning it broaches no exceptions. Uh, they're also more systematic, I think, in that if you look at thinkers like Rothbard or Rand or Herbert Spencer, who I think is kind of the first real systematic libertarian thinker of the 19th century, 
the form their theories tend to take is, you know, they'll, they'll start by articulating some fundamental normative principle. So in Spencer's case, it's the law of equal freedom. Um, in Rothbard's case, it's maybe self-ownership or the non-aggression principle. And then the rest of the theory is essentially derived in this kind of rationalistic a priori way from that fundamental principle. So in Spencer's uh, libertarian treatise, Social Statics, which he published in 1851, right, he starts by spelling out the law of equal freedom. And then the rest of the book is just showing the implications of that principle for everything from questions about children's rights to questions about property rights, intellectual property rights, uh, whether government has any business maintaining a sewer system. Uh, it's all just, you know, here's here are the logical implications of this of this fundamental principle. Um, so that that kind of rationalistic, a priori, systematic approach to political philosophy was also, I think, something new and distinct in the 19th century. And there's a reason for that. I think you know the reason the reason historically that libertarianism emerged when it did and where it did uh, and took the form that it did was that libertarians were facing a threat that earlier classical liberals were not. And that threat was socialism. Um, so right around, you know, 1848, socialism emerges in Europe as this active revolutionary force and advocates of individual liberty look at this and they think this is like the logical endpoint of all those concessions we've been making to government over the years, right? Like if we keep allowing government to erode at our individual liberties, we're going to end up with that, right? Socialism. And that is going to be slavery. So, so socialism represented to libertarians kind of the antithesis of individual liberty and libertarians in a sense looked at that and define themselves in opposition to it, right? So what we stand for is the opposite of that. Uh, and no, no steps can be taken down the road towards socialism um, because it's essentially this slippery slope with no, no logical starting po stopping point. Rather. Can you say something about how you are defining libertarianism since you're writing this kind of sweeping book that has to encompass people from Spencer to yourself. You're somewhat of a character in this book and you are a part of libertarian history. But what, what's your kind of working definition of how you're defining these people? And then I kind of want to ask you the same question about socialism as it was understood by these early libertarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, this is one of those questions that libertarians love to debate amongst themselves is like, you know, how do we, you know, what do we mean by libertarian? Who counts as a real libertarian and who's like a libertarian in name only or something like that? Uh, you know, something that I've probably been accused of once or twice. <laughs> uh, on the well, you're not a libertarian if you haven't been accused of not being a libertarian. That's exactly right. Exactly right. It's a tremendously diverse landscape um, when you when you look at the, the intellectual history, right? I mean, even if you just focus on the 20th century, I mean, yeah, you've got people like Robert Nozick and Murray Rothbard who are both Okay, they're both sort of in the same ballpark, right? They're both kind of broadly Lockean in their approach to ideas like self-ownership and property rights and um, the structure of libertarian moral theory being this kind of deontological uh, ethical system. But then you've got people like, and to take one step out, you got people like Ayn Rand who don't think of themselves as a kind of Kantian or Lockean, but see themselves as having more in common with someone like Aristotle, right? A kind of virtue ethicist 
our eudaimonist approach. Um, and then, you know, a couple steps removed from that, you've got people like Friedrich Hayek or Milton Friedman who aren't anything like deontologists, right? These guys look more like consequentialists of some stripe, right? Like millions or utilitarians. And so, you know, what's going to be the central defining idea that ties all of those people together? It's not going to be something like the non-aggression principle, right? If you define libertarianism in terms of commitment to the non-aggression principle, well, then you've just written Hayek and Friedman and a whole bunch of other people out of the movement, which, okay, like, fine. Like you could use words however you want to use them. But in this book, we wanted to try to take an approach to libertarianism that was sort of maximally inclusive while still being true to the way in which these terms are used by by libertarians, are used in in by non-libertarians in ordinary political discourse. And so that led us to to take on what we call a kind of family resemblance view of libertarianism. Right. So we view we view libertarianism as kind of this big family uh, that includes lots of different members, some of whom are consequentialists, some of whom are deontologists, some of whom are minimal statists, some of whom are uh, anarcho-capitalists, some of whom are classical liberals, what they all have in common, we think, is a kind of rough agreement on a cluster of six ideas that we identify. And those ideas are private property, skepticism of authority, commitment to free markets, a belief in spontaneous order, a commitment to individualism, and a commitment to individual liberty understood as absence of interference from other individuals. And each of those ideas admits of a range of different interpretations, um, but all of them, we think, play an important role in libertarian self-understanding and in what makes libertarianism distinct from other forms of political philosophy like progressive liberalism or conservatism or socialism. So it's a cluster concept, right? Uh, and um, it admits of a great degree of variation among libertarians, but we view that as a strength of the analysis rather than a weakness. And then let's maybe say something a little bit narrower about socialism, specifically how these early 19th century growing libertarian movement, pre-Soviet Union, how are these people thinking about socialism? I mean, we, you know, the, the word socialism today is colored by a lot of different things, including the history of self-labeled communist countries and right. various parties and contemporary thinkers that self-identify as socialists in a, in a softer way. But none of these reference existed for these folks in the 19th century. So how were they thinking yeah. about it? Yeah, that's that's right. And that's important. It's easy to lose sight of the diversity of socialisms uh, that existed in the 19th century in hindsight, right? So we sort of, you know, in the 21st century, we, we kind of identify often socialism with Marxism because Marxism through fluke historical accident really turned out to become the dominant strand of socialism in terms of its actual political influence. But in the 19th century, there were a plethora of socialist thinkers with significant differences between them 
uh, in terms of uh, doctrine, both in terms of kind of fine levels of detail and just kind of big picture questions like, should, should we have a state or not administering this kind of socialist ideology? So a lot of socialists in the 19th century were anarchists, for instance. So, you know, what kind of socialism were, were the libertarians reacting against? Uh, the big fear of the European socialists, the, the fear of the, the socialists in, um, in Britain and in France was state socialism. It was the kind of socialism that threatened uh, to, to take over the apparatus of the state uh, and use that power to seize the means of production, to uh, take over the economy, uh, and to direct that economy in this kind of centrally managed way. That uh, libertarians saw as as a tremendous threat to to individual liberty, uh, to economic liberty, to personal liberty, and you get some very prescient predictions from libertarians about what all this will look like in practice, uh, which uh, winds up being uh, you know very very true to what in fact occurred in the. Um, in the 20th century in the Soviet Union and, and other communist countries. The situation in America is interestingly different. So while Britain, in Britain and France, there were active socialist organizations that were plotting to take control of uh, the apparatus of government, either through revolutionary means or through gradual political processes. Uh, in America, though, there wasn't. Uh, America didn't really have an active socialist movement in that sense. The socialists that you had in America were uh, you know, what Marx would call utopian socialists. These were people who mostly just wanted to set up their own little socialist communities um, out in the burbs and uh, welcome whoever wanted to join them. So if you wanted to go to um, you know, New Harmony and take great place in this grand experiment, you could, but they weren't going to try to force it upon you. And, and libertarians, right, people who were concerned with individual freedom, they looked at that and they thought, well, okay, <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's no threat to us. That's nothing incompatible even with our system of government. Um, and so you had a very different relationship between libertarianism and socialism in the U.S. than you did um, in Britain and France to the point where libertarians, some libertarians in the U.S. in the 19th century, people like Benjamin Tucker, uh, actually identified themselves as socialists. They still distanced themselves from the state socialism of Europe, but they often identified with the kind of moral uh, and sometimes economic concerns that underlay the socialist experiments in the United States. Um, and they viewed these people as, in many ways, on the same time and on the same side in disputes about the proper organization of an economic system and the importance of structuring an economic system so that each individual received the full fruits of their labor. Um, this is a big theme among the early 19th century libertarians like Tucker, who, again, agreed with the socialists that whatever this system is that we have in the United States, if you want to call it capitalism or something else, whatever it is, it's unjust insofar as uh, it contains many elements which deny to individuals the full fright, fruits of their labor. And so <clears throat> Tucker was a big critic of, uh, of rent of interest and of uh, intellectual property um, regimes, with all of which he saw as essentially a kind of what we now call crony capitalism, 
um, that was, was rigging the game in favor of powerful classes against the people who were actually doing the production. And his, maybe with the exception of intellectual property, his criticism of those things like rent and interest was more indirect, right? It was like that the state has various policies that artificially prop up the capitalist class and allow them to extract unnaturally large rates of interest and things like that. And that in a in what he would think of as like a truly just society, those things would those things would tend to reduce. Or was his claim more that charging rent in and of itself was an injustice? Yeah, I th- he varies uh, a lot uh, in the in the view he presents over the course of his career. He's, Tucker is kind of a notoriously difficult person to pin down. He plays devil's advocate sometimes, and it's hard to tell when he's being serious and when he's just trying to provoke an argument. But uh, my sense is that at least sometimes he he holds a much more radical view, uh, which is that these things are are inherently unjust, um, and that it is you know any any efforts by the states to uh, protect these so-called rights um, would be an injustice. So Tucker, Tucker, and a lot of the folks in this era seem to subscribe to something pretty close to you know, a labor theory of economic value, which would was sort of in the process as they were writing of being decisively discredited uh, by the uh, the economics profession in uh, mostly in Europe. Um, to the point where you know now we look back at some of the arguments that Tucker makes on these points, and they just they seem they seem like non-starters. They seem to presuppose a an account of economic value which nobody really takes seriously anymore. But there's there's more to it than just that. So sort of trying to piece apart what's going on in Tucker and how much of it is due to these untenable economic positions, and how much of it do, might be due to uh, a moral position which isn't dependent on those economic views is, is a difficult, challenging task. But there's a, there's a movement of people, um, movement of philosophers and economists today who uh, are engaged in that process. Uh, I have in mind here, like left libertarians, like those associated with the Center for the Stateless Society, people like Kevin Carson, people like uh, Roderick Long, um, who, are, who are doing really good work along these lines. So I'd, I'd recommend their um, their writings and their websites to people who are interested in exploring this more fully. I would too. I'm a huge fan of Roderick Long and have been, he's been a big influence on me as a, he's amazing. He's a really amazing <laughs> thinker and a, and a great person. Yeah. yeah. Stunningly brilliant guy and very sweet, very nice. Um, not, not everyone in, on, in that camp, you know, is like maybe known for their gentleness and niceness, Yes, uh, <laughs> but I would say he certainly is. Absolutely. Um, so you're talking about Benjamin Tucker and this group of libertarians kind of still being in the throes of this older labor theory of value, but they're writing at the time where like the marginalist and subjectivist revolution is actually happening, where the accepted theory of value has more to do with the subjective evaluations of individual people, uh, especially on like the marginal product rather than like the total or average value of something. Is there any evidence as you were like scouring the, the Journal of Liberty and stuff that any of these people were engaging with this new this revolution in economic thinking or were they aware of it there's not a lot there um and it's it's been a little while now since i since i looked through um these journals uh to uh, for this particular issue um it, it liberty was a tremendously vibrant uh intellectual journal and tucker uh welcomed debates uh on on a whole host of issues 
um, ranging from you know the rights of children to uh, to the morality of interest. And I can't remember the names of the people involved in this particular debate right now, but I I do think that there were at least some individuals writing for Liberty who um, were putting forward marginalist positions on economic issues. But uh, it, there's a great book, um, if you really want to get into this, because we only kind of skim the surface of this stuff in, in our book. There's a really nice book by Wendy McElroy uh, called The Debates of Liberty, which, um, which is organized around a series of debates that took place in the pages of the journal Liberty. Uh, and it kind of goes through and talks about the different positions advocated by the different people. Um, it's, it's just a really helpful guide. All the all the is, original issues of Liberty are online too. So you can look at the original text. If yeah, you want, she webbed them, didn't she? And like made a or, or went through a process of doing an electronic uh, index. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was her, if it was Sean Wilbur. I mean, she she might have been involved in the project. It might have been a collaborative project. I'm not sure. But um, she she certainly has been very, very involved in uh, in the scholarship on on Tucker and his and his his gang uh, and and bringing them to to light to a contemporary audience. And that and that book is just it's a it's a really helpful kind of shorthand way of of getting at just the tremendous intellectual diversity of that group. Uh, you know, I say. You know, Tucker, Tucker himself was an anarchist, but there were debates about anarchism versus minarchism in there. Tucker was a was an egoist, um, but there were debates uh, between Tucker and other egoists versus those libertarians who believed in a more kind of natural rights type view or a kind of neo Spencerianism, which was one of the main contenders in the late part of the 19th century. So just really fun, really um, detailed debates, a lot of back and forth in this journal. Uh, it makes for it makes for very fun reading. I really enjoy reading debates and I haven't read Wendy's book, but I did read instead of a book, Tucker's book, which yeah. does include a lot of debates. You know, you have to I, I can't remember if he includes and prints the people he's debating with or you just have to kind of surmise what they were saying. But that also gave me a, a sense of like how vibrant and back and forth those issues were. And I got real invested in his ongoing debates with Johann Most and <laughs> these weird yeah. old people and very, very fun. And I think he he's a very engaging, very engaging writer. In some ways he reminds me of Rand, like he's a harsh dude. I feel like they would either get along or sure. hate each other to death. I imagine they would butt heads pretty hard, uh, given given their personalities. They Almost certainly. Two very strong personalities. <laughs> what's, what's interesting, um, so I mean, there's been a lot of stuff written about Tucker and uh, the Boston Anarchists and the Journal of Liberty, um, all of that stuff is pretty well documented prior to this book. What struck me, though, was that there was much, much less written about similar kinds of more popular libertarian movements in Britain uh, around the same period. Um, so you had Herbert Spencer you know, writing Social Statics in 1850, and he remained intellectually active up through the 1890s. But there, he inspired this whole libertarian movement in in Britain, uh, and they too had their their journals. There were there were a number of these journals. There was um, Personal Rights, which was a journal edited by a guy named uh, Jacob uh, Levy. Uh, there was a guy, another guy named Wordsworth Donisthorpe, uh, who edited a journal called Juice J J U S. And these journals too hosted a number of debates about all the kinds of things that libertarians tend to debate about. And for whatever reason, these these debates just haven't gotten the same kind of attention as the uh, American journal Liberty has gotten. 
even though in a lot of ways, the forms of libertarianism that people were debating in Britain are a lot more like the kinds of libertarians that people are talking about today than the Tucker stuff is like, you know, libertarians who only know libertarianism through like, you know, Nozick or Rand or Rothbard, and then they go look at Tucker tend to have the reaction like, wow, this is like, this is very strange and different and alien. Whereas if they look at somebody like Basquiat, right, and they read Basquiat's The Law, which was also published around 1850, that resonates with them. That's like familiar and it makes a lot of the same arguments, uses a lot of the same ideas. And, 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 it's, and it's the stuff that you see in Britain towards the end of the 19th century in personal rights and juice is a lot more like the Basquiat stuff than it is like the Tucker stuff. So it's it's surprising that it hasn't gotten more attention. And you know, we we touch on it a bit in this book. We discuss some of the major figures and some of the major ideas. But um, you know, there's there's a whole book to be written there. Um, there's there's a lot of archival work yet to be done because none of this stuff is online and easily accessible yet. You have to you have to get it on microfiche from like European uh, university libraries. Uh, so um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll do that myself someday. But uh, if any enterprising historian or uh, political theorist is listening to this and, and wants a project to work on. I think there's there's something for you. That would be awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. It is surprising. I mean, the only the only one of those thinkers I think I'm familiar with in any detail is Auburn Herbert. And I, I read right. The Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State. And you're right. It it reads, besides the fact that the style is obviously an older style, it reads like a contemporary radical libertarian um, who would fit right in with people like Nozick or Rothbard. And I I can't understand why he's not more. I mean, he's he's at least got published books um, that are yeah. still in print today. Well, I don't know if they're still in print, but you can find them used. Yeah, and, I think Liberty Fund, Liberty Fund has an edition of his uh, Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State, and which is a great collection of his essays uh, with, I think, a, a really nice introduction by Eric Mack. Yep. Um, I have that and, one. And uh, he's he had a little bit of a popular following. Like I would I would run into internet libertarians who would call themselves voluntarists, right? Who were uh, fans of of Auburn Herbert, but um, but he's just the tip of the iceberg. There's there's a whole lot of of really interesting thinkers and ideas there that um, have sadly been uh, neglected. Hey everyone, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just wanted to take a break to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to these episodes and giving me the opportunity to speak with people I admire and read amazing books every week, every other week, whatever. If you are interested in helping this little engine that could of a show grow, uh, please just recommend it to a friend. Recommend it to a friend. Maybe give it a give it a five-star rating on one of those places you listen to it at. But really, if you just recommend it to someone, that, that goes a long way um, for a small show like this. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. Keep listening. And back to the show. Maybe let's jump gears a little bit. I wanted to ask you about property, which is a big part of libertarianism. So at first blush, non-libertarians are often, I think, pretty attracted to the strong views on liberty that libertarians espouse, at least when they just kind of say it generally and abstractly. But if you talk more and you say like, okay, what does it mean to be free, to have liberty, to do what you want? Uh, and they, you start to see the role that property rights play in like the practical application of a person expressing their liberty. Some people, especially some people on the left, might take a step back more and, and be skeptical of these kinds of strong property rights. So I'm just curious in 
looking through these older figures, what have been some of the more interesting or persuasive attempts you've seen in justifying the kind of strong property rights that libertarians tend to favor? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because a property like you know we've defined libertarianism in this in this you know family resemblance cluster concept kind of way um but if you if you had to pick just one thing that was sort of central to the libertarian worldview it probably would be their commitment to property rights right and not just you know property rights not even fundamentally property rights in in stuff right like you know houses and land and things like that but more fundamentally property in one's person you know from which according to a lot of influential libertarian views, your, your property rights and all that other stuff flow, right? It's because you own yourself that you're able to acquire property and external resources. So a lot of libertarians hold a view like that, um, which stems, you know, broadly speaking, from uh, the ideas of John Locke, uh, who thought that, uh, you know, he's something he argues in his, his second treatise of government, that individuals... Uh, have a property right in their bodies and their labor, and that when they when they exercise labor on external objects, they thereby mix their labor with those things. They mix something that they own, their labor, with something that they don't own, like the land, and thereby come to acquire a property right in that land. Maybe as long as they meet this proviso that you know there's enough and is good left for other people too. Right? So that's that's a standard Lockean account, um, which you find in, you know, explicitly in, in Robert Nozick, um, you find a very similar kind of story in Murray Rothbard. Rand too, it's, you know, the, there's some important differences with Rand, but uh, you know, it's still, I classify it as, as a broadly Lockean approach to property. And that was all much more highly contested, I think, in the 19th century than it is today for a variety of different reasons. You know, if I had to recommend just one reading to get a nice summary of this con contestation and just how um, divided libertarians were on these issues of property, I, I think I'd recommend a chapter from Herbert Spencer's Social Statics. He has a chapter in there called uh, On the Right to the Use of the Earth, which is essentially an extended critique of Locke uh, on property rights. And he criticizes Locke in that chapter on at least two different grounds. The first of which is historical. So suppose you're a libertarian today, right? And you say like, okay, like I got, I got my stuff. I own my house. You know, I got my bank account. And if the government comes and tries to take my stuff and give it to somebody else, that's theft. Taxation is theft. That's an injustice. I object to it. One worry about that is that the stuff that you have today and the stuff that other people have today, if you sort of go back in time and you look at where that stuff came from and you go back far enough, you're eventually going to come to a point where there was some kind of injustice, right? So like me, you know, maybe I own a house, right? And I got that house by buying it from somebody else, right? In a perfectly peaceful you know, libertarian transaction. And maybe that other guy got the house from somebody else who got it in a personally, perfectly peaceful libertarian transaction. But if you keep going, right, like far enough back in history, you're eventually going to wind up with somebody who got the land on which the house is built, at least, by essentially clubbing somebody else over the head and taking it. Um, the history of property is replete with 
violence and theft and conquest. And that's a problem for libertarians because libertarians have what the philosopher Robert Nozick called a historical theory of justice, which is to say that libertarians think that a distribution of resources is just if and only if that distribution came about, historically speaking, in a way that is compatible with libertarian principles. So Nozick's view is whatever arises from a just, just situation by just steps is itself just. So in other words, if we look out in the world today and we see tremendous inequality, right? Like some people are super rich, some people are super poor. What Nozick's going to say about that is, well, that in itself is not unjust. Inequality in itself is not unjust. But if it came about through unjust acts, then it's unjust. If it came about through just acts, then it's fine. The problem is, right, like everything we have came about through unjust acts at some point of remove, right? So what do libertarians say about this, right? Do we say that, well, sure, the land on which my house is built, I live in California, right? The land on which my house is built at some point in the distant history was stolen from somebody else. But because that happened a long, long, long time ago and all the people are dead, we're just going to kind of ignore that and pretend like everything's okay. Or is there some obligation on libertarian theory to make amends for past injustice? And if so, like, how does that work, given that all the people who were party to the original injustice are long dead and gone? So this is, this is one challenge, right? What do we do about these historical injustices uh, in property rights? What do we do about the fact that Americans stole the labor from the slaves and use that to build uh, much of the American economy in the in the 18th century? What do we do about the fact that much of the land was stolen from uh, indigenous peoples? Uh, what do we do about all the other uh, injustices that have been committed up to the present day, right? Like we've got governments that engage in crony capitalism, uh, taking wealth from some people and giving it to uh, more politically favored groups. Like, what do we do about that? Those are all, I think, Tremendously difficult questions to cope with, you know, from any perspective, um, but especially from a perspective like libertarianism that that takes property rights so seriously. That's one challenge. <laughs> that's and that's just <laughs> that's just one challenge. The other challenge is, in a way, uh, more fundamental because on, on the historical challenge, you're still open in principle to the ideas that property rights could come about in a in a way that's compatible with libertarian principles. But the other challenge is that it kind of gets at this idea of, of labor mixing, right? So again, you know, Locke's view was like, okay, you own your, your body, you own your land. So if you go out and you find like a piece of land uh, that nobody's cultivated and you kind of till the soil or something, well, now you've got a property right in that land and you can put a fence around it and keep everybody else off of it. Well, says Herbert Spencer. And then later, um, Henry George would make the same argument um, in, a, in a much more influential way. Okay, let's say you do own your labor. Uh, and let's say you own what you produce with your labor. So if you till some soil, um, plant some seeds or something, and you grow some yams on the land, I'll, I'll grant you, says Spencer slash George, I'll grant you that you own the yams. Sure. But what on earth makes you believe you own the land on which those yams were grown. Like you didn't create the land. The land was not the product of your labor. Uh, the land pre-existed your labor. So even if we assume that you have a right to that which you produce with your labor, that only gives you a right to 
right? The fruit, the yams, not the soil itself, let alone like the soil, you know, down to what, like how far, how far down does it go, right? Uh, how far up does it go? Blockians don't really have good answers to any of those questions. And according to Spencer and George, the, the, you know, there is no good answer to those questions. Wasn't so, the medieval answer like an infinite cone that goes down to the center <laughs> of the earth and up to the heavens infinitely? That that was an answer, the ad, ad kylum uh, doctrine, right? It's to, it to the heavens. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's there's some libertarians, I think, uh, you know, Walter Block has, has talked about, I can't remember whether he def- Defends this view or or criticize. I think he might defend it. No, of, really. Some of his papers. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about this. It's been a while since I, I read it, um, but he he certainly discusses it. But I mean, the, the point is right. Like it's you know, so so Spencer and George are kind of taking on this Lockean idea of self ownership and the ownership of your labor, but they're denying that that ownership entails any right to the land itself or. Or other natural resources like under the land, like you know, petroleum reserves or mineral deposits or things like that. So this poses a big challenge for libertarianism. And this was a this is a hotly contested uh, view during the 19th century. There were a lot of libertarians, uh, not just Spencer and George, but a lot of folks who thought that property rights and land were fundamentally incompatible with basic libertarian principles. Um, and you still see that view today. Um, there. Are, there are some people who academic philosophers call left libertarians. Nobody else calls them this, but people like Peter Valentine or Hillel Steiner, um, who still advocate something very much like the um, Spencerian Georgist view, but they don't have much contact with the libertarian movement. And so like the, the popular libertarian movement, there really isn't that much debate anymore about property rights and land. It's just sort of taken for granted uh, as uh, a kind of core tenant of libertarian philosophy. Uh, which I think is unfortunate to the extent that the arguments that people like Spencer and George gave, even if they're not like decisively good, they're they're strong and they need to be grappled with. Uh, and so to see them being just ignored altogether is uh, is a little disappointing. I'm not sure how much it responds to George and Spencer's particular criticisms, but I I spoke to Dan Moeller recently about his book, Governing Least, and really great book, highly recommend, and also has a a great and creative section on what I think is a, a little bit of a revisionary view on initial acquisition of property rights. He basically has a criticism of Locke that Locke focused far too heavily on labor as a means of establishing property rights, when a, probably a more defensible view would be that labor is maybe one of several things, you know, like moral activities that could increase your moral claim to some external property right. And he, he's got a non-exhaustive list of things. Let's see if I can remember it. It's like labor, adding value to something, creation, uh, priority. So like getting there first, you know, making use of something. And, uh, and he includes the proviso in there as well. Like if you appropriate some property and it's like the last well on a desert island, that gives you a weaker claim than if you had appropriated a well on an island full of nice wells or something, if someone else wanted to challenge your claim. And that, you know, when you're establishing an initial property claim to something, there are a variety of things you might appeal to to say, look, my claim is better than yours. And that's that struck me as a, a lot more reasonable of a way, I mean, I don't know if he's right, but it struck me as more reasonable there. Something does feel a little artificial about the unique focus on labor. And maybe it's yeah. just because agriculture played such a central role in Locke's time. And that's what he speculates, that it makes sense that Locke was focusing on this, but it's not the only morally relevant thing in establishing a property claim. 
Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. So the 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 challenge I just raised is really a challenge for Lockeans uh, who put this emphasis on labor. If you've got a different approach to property altogether, I mean, clearly, if you're you know if you're a kind of consequentialist about property rights, then this just isn't an issue, right? The issue sure. isn't, this isn't how this got produced. It's what works, right? But you could you you could avoid this problem without going all the way to consequentialism just by finding a kind of different sort of deontological ground for, for property rights um, outside of, of labor considerations. And I think uh, you know, Mueller, Mueller certainly has an interesting approach. I mean, it, another complicating factor here, right, is, you know, I think libertarians are sort of over-reliant upon Locke uh, as an analysis of property. You know, one of the problems is the, is the overemphasis on labor. Another problem is, though, that Locke had just a kind of very simplistic view of what a property right is. You know, so Locke doesn't out and out say this, but he the, the way he talks about property suggests that he conceived a property as this kind of all or nothing relationship, right? It's like either you have a property right in something or you don't. Whereas in the, you know, starting in the 20th century, legal theorists who were thinking through issues of property in a, in a, in a more systematic way um, came to th- see property rights as as kind of this bundle of rights, um, you know. So to have a property right in, say, a piece of land is to is to have a number of distinct rights with respect to that land. So you might have the right to use the land, which is one right. You might have the right to transfer the land, which is a different kind of right. Uh, you might have the right to the deposits under the land, right, which is another kind of right. You might have a right to control people's movement across the land, which is another kind of right, and any particular property right could have some or many of those sticks either present or removed from it, right? So like you might have beachfront property, for instance. Um, you might own a house like on the California beach and you have the right to build a house there. You have the right to rent that house out or sell it or um, you know, transform it in different ways. Um, but you might not have the right to control people's movement across that land if there's an easement on your land, right? Like your land is blocking people's access to the beach and the state has said like, you know, we can't do that. We, don't, we need to allow people some way of getting across the beach. Your house is in the way. So we're going to give people the right to walk across your land. You still own the land in a lot of ways. You have a lot of rights to that land that non-owners don't have. It's just that one of the sticks in that bundle has now been removed. And once you start thinking about property in that way, things get a lot more complicated more quickly, right? And we can start talking about what gives people not just a property right in the land, but certain specific rights with respect to that land. Uh, the right to, you know, maybe you have a river flowing through your land. What rights do you have over that liver? What, what kind of, uh, can you put a dam up there blocking, you know, the water flow to your neighbor's property and so forth? And we could talk about the different kinds of considerations that justify, you know, adding or removing different sticks from the bundle. Did you come across any discussion? This is just something I've been curious about. I'm sure there's lots of good talk about this amongst legal theorists and like property case law and stuff, but uh, amongst libertarians talking about principled ways to think about property abandonment, especially unintentional abandonment. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into thinking about how initial property can be acquired um, and some about how it can be given away voluntarily. But, you know, is there is there some principled way to think about if I stop using my property for a certain amount of time or in a certain way that it's legitimate for someone else to appropriate it? 
so not as such. I mean, I think the closest that I saw to a discussion of that sort is is Benjamin Tucker's theory of property, uh, kind of mutualist theory of property. I had him in mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So Tucker, you know, Tucker has the view that um, you have a property right in some external resource uh, only when you're actually kind of physically controlling that resource. So if you're if you're actually living on the land, um, then that gives you a property right to it. Um, but there's, there's no such thing as property on Tucker's view, um, absent that kind of actual present use. So if you, you know, there's no absentee landlord, landlordism on, uh, on Tucker's view, right? Once you, once you move away from the property, uh, it belongs to the people who, who occupy and use it. We've been talking a lot about 19th century libertarians, which I love. It's a I'm hugely interested in these people. I've been really inspired and influenced by people like Herbert Spencer and Bastiat. And, you know, people talk a lot about the uh, the I pencil essay as a way of like demonstrating the interconnectedness of society. And for me, Bastiat had that influence. And he's got a discussion about someone washing up on a desert island and how emphasizing the point of how impossible it is to live without a society. And he goes through all the ways in which even if you're washed up on a desert island, you are constantly relying on the benefits, the interconnected benefits of, you know, the cooperation over the centuries in the way that like maybe you have clothes on you. Well, who made those clothes? Maybe you've got a little bit of the broken boat. And even if you don't have any of those things, you have a language that you're thinking in that was developed over centuries by other people. And without any of these things, you'd be completely lost. I, I'm only bringing this up just to emphasize my my interest in in uh, this era of libertarianism, and that people should check it out. And that mean, by the way, the, you can find that same idea in Adam Smith too in the Wealth of Nations, right? He's yeah, got this discussion the of a woolen maker. coat. Uh, the, not just the pin maker, but he's got this discussion of the woolen coat, uh, where he says, like, look, if you if you take a day laborer in England and you look at this, you know, this apparently cheap woolen coat that he's wearing. Take a minute to think about all the different kinds of labor that went into the production of that coat. And then he does the same thing that Leonard Reed does. And he goes, talks about all the different, you know, the, the people raising the cows and whatever. It's a venerable tradition. And it's really important because one criticism that libertarians get so often is that we're like atomists and, you know, we believe only in like the isolated individual. And there's certainly an element of libertarian thought that emphasizes that. And there's an importance to like a level of, you know, your right to a kind of moral autonomy. But there's also such a rich emphasis in libertarian thought on the importance of society and mutual cooperation and how much benefit there is to be had in all of that. That's right. Uh, can we jump ahead? Let me just ask you a question or two about some more contemporary libertarians, not necessarily even still alive. But who's a more recent libertarian figure or figures that you think has been tragically neglected either by the general public or by especially by contemporary libertarians? Like who should who should we know more about? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting work being done by by some contemporary. I'm mean, like, how, it depends on how recent you want to talk about. But like, if we're talking about like living today and, and still doing work, uh, I think there's some really interesting people in the academy who are doing fascinating and important and well-informed work that hasn't maybe quite been picked up by the broader popular libertarian movement. 
Uh, so I have in mind people like David Schmitz, who I worked with at the University of Arizona, brilliant political philosopher, not a not a strict libertarian in the sense of a kind of absolutist uh, rationalist along kind of Nozickian Rothbardian lines, but certainly somebody with a kind of keen sensitivity to issues of property and freedom and uh, limited government. Uh, and his book, and if I had to recommend one thing by by Dave, I'd, I'd recommend his book, The Elements of Justice which uh, had, a, had a profound influence on me as a graduate student. And uh, in that book, Schmitz defends a kind of broadly, I think, pluralist uh, and empiricist uh, approach to thinking about justice, right? So justice isn't just about one thing. Uh, it's not just about liberty or um, you know, treating people as equals or giving people what they need. It's There are plural of real and competing values that uh, a theory of justice has to take account of. And, uh, and there's sort of no avoiding the, the hard trade-offs that uh, that kind of pluralism entails. His work, I think, is, is tremendously interesting and important. I think uh, Gerald Gauss, another uh, Arizona philosopher who, who passed away uh, a couple of years ago, doing really interesting work on what's called sort of public reason liberalism, which again, isn't exactly the same thing as strict libertarianism, but has a lot of overlap with it. I think I see him operating in the tradition of people like Hayek, for sure. Um, but also John Rawls uh, was, a, was a major influence on, on Gauss. Randy Barnett wrote a really great book that seems to have fallen off the radar, sadly, uh, called The Structure of Liberty, uh, which I think is is a really tremendous uh, book on libertarian theory. And it's, and it's one of these sort of like attempts to develop a kind of new foundation for libertarianism sort of books, right? So it's very ambitious um, and, and very, I think, uh, insightful uh, and, and successful as far as it goes. Uh, I think he's writing a new book on libertarianism now too, which we might see in the next year or two. I saw him, his, he mentioned that on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So he's, his stuff is great. Uh, and then you've got a lot of uh, economists, you know, associated with George Mason University, people like Pete Betke, um, all the students that, that Pete Betke has put out there in the world, people like, you know, Chris Coyne and Peter Leeson, and uh, they're doing fantastic work as well. So, you know, th those are some of the contemporary people that uh, that I'm keeping my eye on. My, my If I had to pick like one person from the 20th century who I think is pointed the right way forward, for me, it's Friedrich Hayek. I think Hayek is, is a tremendous a figure and a, just a really rich source of ideas, not not neglected by any means, right? Like you know, sure. Hayek's, Hayek's terribly important, but I think like there there are depths to Hayek's ideas that still have yet to be fully explored. So we haven't finished extracting everything there is to be got from that mine uh, just yet, and uh, I think it's a much richer richer field for libertarian development going forward than I think I think um, than you would find in like a. a Rothbard or Nozick or Rand. I finally got around to reading Constitution of Liberty just just recently. I, I yeah. put it off because I, I read Road to Serfdom when I was much younger and mm -hmm. and I wasn't like super enamored with his writing style. And I, so I wasn't like excited to read some of his longer books, but I read it and I was, I don't know, maybe I'm just have a different taste now. I didn't, I, f I found it relatively entertaining and very insightful. I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a fantastic book. I'd certainly recommend that to anybody who is interested in exploring Hayek's ideas. Um, or if you want something um, with some some shorter, more bite-sized pieces, 
Um, yeah, there's a collection of essays called Individualism and Economic Order to, that contains some of Hayek's greatest hits. So it has his essay on the use of knowledge in society, which is just like transformatively important. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the most important essays in, in free market thinking of the 20th century, I think. Also some essays on there on individualism, which I think are, are more philosophical, but really, really important and interesting too. But uh, yeah, Hayek's, Hayek's amazing. You had an interesting point in the book that was, you know, one of the moments where my eyebrows raised and I was like, I had no idea that that was the case about how both Buchanan and Hayek, um, ah. James Buchanan and Friedrich Hayek seem to have some important concepts that really closely like presaged um, Rawls's veil of ignorance. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, I mean, this is something that uh, that my co-author, John Tomasi, explores in much greater detail in his previous book. Uh, free market fairness, which is uh, a kind of extended attempt to reconcile uh, Hayek and and Rawls, or uh, to reconcile you know, free markets with a with a broad conception of social justice. And uh, you know, one of the one of the discovery he made, he made in, in in researching that book was was this overlap that you know in in Rawls, this idea of a veil of ignorance plays a kind of central role in the way he thinks about. Justice. So Rawls asks us to imagine, imagine that we didn't know anything about ourselves, right? That we didn't know how smart we are, or how rich we were, um, or what kind of you know social class we would be in, and we had to determine with a, a number of other people who are similarly situated what kinds of principles of justice we would choose to govern our society. Uh, and Rawls thought that under this veil of ignorance we would all be a little bit cautious about kind of reining in uh, excessive inequalities, right? Like, you know, because what if we got unlucky, right? Like, what if we said just like, let her rip, laissez-faire, social Darwinism, and then we turn out to be one of the people on the bottom of the economic distribution. Rawls thought, you know, we, we wouldn't choose that. We would instead, under a veil of ignorance, choose a, uh, a set of principles that would uh, constrain inequality, and on Rawls's view, constrain inequality pretty pretty severely, um, so that no matter where we ended up, because after all, it's a matter of luck. You don't have any control over the family that you're born into, right? The social class that you're born into. You don't have any control over the genetic endowment that you're born with, right? Like, are you going to be born with a propensity for a high IQ to be really tall and healthy and successful? Or are you going to be born with a you know, kind of less fortunate genetic endowment, right? All these things are largely a matter of luck. And, and Rawls thought, um, you know, that we could use this veil of ignorance idea as a way of sort of compensating people who fare poorly in, in this lottery. Um, and you see, you see kind of the same idea, not as well developed, but um, you see, you see Hayek and Buchanan both flirting with this idea of a veil of ignorance. And both explicitly saying that, like, you know, they've read some of Rawls' work and um, you would think, right, because Rawls, Rawls is sort of seen now as the antithesis to Nozick, right? It's like, no, Rawls is the big lefty philosopher of the 20th century and Nozick is the libertarian. So you would think, like, Hayek and Buchanan would sort of hate Rawls, right? But actually, you know, they read Rawls and they said, like, yeah, this guy's this guy's doing good stuff. Like, he's he's basically right. We might disagree about some details, but um, he's, he's basically on the right track to thinking about what justice is. Over the course of libertarian history, there's been a lot of like prominent divisions between different libertarians that you you talk about. You know, there there are anarchists versus small government or minarchist libertarians. There's left versus right, moderate, radical, consequentialist versus rights based. 
all of these kinds of big, important divisions. In writing the book, what central divisions in libertarian thought did, did you come away feeling were like the most salient or have the strongest through line throughout our history as a people? For me, I think there are the kind of sort of policy divisions that you find among libertarians about like how big the state should be, right? Anarchism versus minimal statism. I think, you know, th those are important. But to me, that particular division is of secondary importance to the more kind of fundamental methodological divisions that you find among libertarians. And here I have in mind the distinction, you know, the kind of division that you see between people like Nozick and Rand and Rothbard on the one hand, and Spencer, I would argue, on the one hand, uh, and people like Friedman and, and Hayek and Schmitz um, on the other, right? And that's a division between what we call in the book, you know, strict libertarians, that's the Rothbard, Rand, Nozick group, right? Strict libertarians who take a kind of monistic, rationalistic, um, absolutist approach to libertarian principles. And what we call um, classical liberals, this is the Hayek, Friedman, Schmitz axis, uh, classical liberals, on the other hand, who tend to be more pluralistic, more empiricist, less absolutist in their uh, positions. Uh, that, I think, is the more fundamental distinction, because in some ways it it explains the other distinctions that we find, right? Like, you know, why why are some people okay with with some government, um, while other people insist upon the only moral government is no government at all. In, in large part, I think it's it's the strict libertarians, it's the absolutists, the rationalists who tend to be who tend to be anarchists, whereas it's the the classical liberals who tend to be in favor of some kind of state on more empiricist, less absolutist grounds. That's that's not perfect, right? So I think you know counter example here. Uh, you know, somebody like David Free David Friedman, not Milton Friedman, but David Friedman is an anarchist who's not a deontologist. Um, he's not a rationalist. He's he's broadly empiricist in his approach to thinking through moral and political issues, and yet arrives at anarcho-capitalism. So I don't, you know, there's there's no generalization I can make about libertarians that's going to hold with 100% validity because again, it's a very very diverse bunch, but. Um, it does tend to be the case that the absolutists go the anarcho-capitalist route, whereas the empiricists go a somewhat different route. And uh, and I think, you know, you still see that in the Libertarian Party today, right? Like if you look at the conflicts that are raging within the Libertarian Party about, you know, what the party should stand for, how how it should message itself, what kinds of political alliances it should form. Um, you have some people who are who are more absolutist, right? Who say you know, like the libertarianism is about one thing. It's the non-aggression principle. Um, and that's that's the thing, and it's the thing that we you know defend to the death, and nobody who's against that is with us. Um, and then you have other libertarians who take a broader view and say, like, look, we should work to get the government smaller, um, even if that doesn't get us all the way to anarcho-capitalism, right? At least we can all agree that like you know, the direction that we want to move is you know, less government involvement in the economy, less government control over our lives. Uh, they tend to take a more pragmatic, less absolutist stance. You see that in the Libertarian Party today. Honestly, you've seen that since the origins of the Libertarian Party in the 1970s. So this is this is nothing new, but it's it's one of those perennial divisions that that libertarians 
face. It's and I think it's small ideological groups it. in general. I mean, this is a feature of like sure. socialists as well and all this infighting. For sure, for sure. And it's one of those things where it's like, it's interesting to look through the history of libertarian thought and see like, oh, okay, like, you know, this <laughs> this turmoil we're going through right now, like this isn't just this weird period of time that we're in. This is, we've been here before, right? And we can get some insight into the how this has worked out in the past. Who do you have in mind um, in the older 19th century tradition as being more on the moderate, empirical, pluralist kind of end of that spectrum? I'm more familiar with the radicals yeah, of the 19th century. Maybe John Stuart Mill. Yeah, I think you know, I think the, the 19th century libertarians tended to be on the radical end of the continuum. So, uh, you know, certainly... Spencer's an interesting case because Spencer called himself a consequentialist. He thought that um, the ultimate standard of of politics and a moral value was was consequences. But he he was a rationalist consequentialist, so he didn't think we should judge particular policies by the consequences of those particular policies. Rather, he thought we should use empirical considerations to come up with general principles. And then we should apply those general principles in a kind of hard and fast way across every case that, that comes our way. So he's sort of a weird position, but he, he winds up being a, a kind of indistinguishable for the most part from you know, the kind of radical rationalists that, uh, that are more familiar to us. Uh, Bastiat was, was pretty radical. Um, Molinari was, uh, was pretty radical. Um, people like Thomas Hodgkin and, and Auburn Herbert were pretty radical. The, the most influential non-radical that comes to mind, um, in the 19th century was a guy named, I mentioned before, uh, J H Levy, um, who edited the, the personal rights journal, um, and, uh, his writings aren't very widely accessible. Um, you could, you could go on Google book books <laughs> and do a search for J.H. Levy and individualism, and, uh, you'll get some PDFs coming up in the public domain that are, uh, that you can read through, but he, he tended to be fairly critical of the, the rationalists, uh, and, and made some, I think fairly compelling arguments, um, in critique of their position and defended a more empiricist pluralist approach to, uh, to classical liberalism broadly along the lines of, of John Stuart Mill, who is maybe another name to put out there as a kind of, you know, somebody who's broadly within the libertarian family, but, but not on the radical end of that, uh, of that spectrum. Um, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which Mill was a libertarian, but, uh, he's, a he's somebody that libertarians tend to have strong feels about uh, these days. Right. So like Murray Rothbard hated, uh, John Stuart Mill, um, and a lot of people who followed in in uh, Rothbard's footsteps have uh, have similarly um, lumped scorn upon Mill because they view him as the kind of gateway to 20th century progressive liberalism. Like he he was where it all went wrong. Like we had this we had this solid libertarian foundation. People like Spencer uh, and then who was you know who's was hardcore. He was principled. Damn it! And then Mill came along and he's all mushy headed and you know on the one hand this, on the other hand that kind of thinking and that kind of pluralism really or sloppiness as as someone like Rothbard would call it. Uh, really kind of open the door for progressive liberals like Dewey and Hobbes house to just gradually eat away at individual liberty and expand the role of the state. Um, but I think he gets a pretty bad rap. 
Uh, I think, I think Mill is pretty awesome. I think, um, his on Liberty is, is great. Like it's a good book. It's not sufficient, but I think his principles of political economy, uh, is, is really quite fantastic and, uh, uh, underappreciated. It's a huge book. So very few people take the time to read through it anymore. But, uh, if you, you know, if you're, if you're a classical liberal, if you're a libertarian, uh, and you go and read through that book, you're going to find a lot in there to like and appreciate, I think, and learn from. Did you come to have any ideas in researching this book about what kinds of messaging styles tended to be the most successful or persuasive to uh, not preaching to the choir audience? <sighs> Probably not, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I wish I did have some some great insights on that question. Um, I don't know that I, I do, right? I mean, I have examples of people who were successful messengers, uh, right. But so, so many of those like examples you, are on opposite sides, right? Like there are, there are radical fire yeah. breathing types that are super persuasive and there are moderate, I mean, like Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand are both exactly. hugely persuasive figures who are, couldn't be more different in temperament. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you have some people who are quite strident and resolute and uncompromising and that resonates with a certain audience. Um, you know, so Rand is, is an example of that sort. Rothbard, uh, is an example of that sort. Uh, and then you have people like, as you mentioned, Milton Friedman, right? The, the happier warrior who always had a smile on his face and always was never really condemned anody as like, you know, ir irrational or repugnant or morally evil. Uh, he would tell them they were wrong, but he would explain kind of in a gentle way, uh, why he thought they were wrong. And, and that was successful too. Um, I do think though that, so there's there's messaging, there's tone, there's style, and I don't know that there's any one style or tone uh, that's sort of universally more successful than others. But you know, there are there's another kind of axis along which libertarians differ, and that's the extent to which they're willing to work with and within existing systems of power. And no surprise, I mean, I think. What you find is that libertarians who are willing to work within existing systems of power tend to have a greater influence on those systems of power than libertarians who don't, right? So Friedman worked with policy people, right? He worked with people in DC um, with whom he disagreed quite strongly, um, but nevertheless, he was able to work with them effectively. And as a result of doing so, he was able to achieve some policy goals, which moved the United States. Um, in a libertarian direction in some pretty significant ways, right? Air, airline deregulation, uh, abolition the, of the draft, yeah, uh, right? Like, you know, God, I mean, geez, right? If there's any one thing, like any one policy victory that libertarians celebrate, right? It's like the draft. Like this is literal slavery <laughs> on the part of the government. Uh, and, and Friedman helped to end that. Especially radical with, libertarians, um, I would hope, would be cheering that on. Right. Whereas if you think like nobody who nobody who doesn't sign on to the, the non-aggression principle is worth talking to or working with, well, then you're going to be left on the sidelines, you know, writing in your journals and maybe attracting sort of like a wide following on the Internet or something. But like that's going to be the extent of it. Right. OK. Yeah. You got like 50,000 Twitter followers now. Now what? Right. If you want to get things done in the world, you've got to you've got to work with the world. Going back to the 19th century, you know, you can find somebody like Richard Cobden. Um, who was a member of parliament in Britain, right? So this is somebody that worked within the system, um, but he brought free trade to Britain. 
Um, and in the course of bringing free trade to Britain, he, he fed the masses, right? Like he prevented a lot of people um, from starving uh, because food was too expensive, not because it was scarce, but because the government had made it uh, expensive. Uh, another huge, huge libertarian victory, right? So I, like I admire the radicals and I don't know, maybe... Maybe abolitionism is one of those cases where, you know, like the strongest case for radicalism could be made, right? Like it was the people, it was the people who were arguing that slavery is a moral evil and were willing to like lay down their lives uh, in combating against that evil. Like they were the ones without whom slavery might not have been abolished or it would have been abolished, you know, much more slowly than it had. Maybe that was like the biggest victory for radicalism. Um, you know, if I had to point to a case on the other side, um, but in, in general, and, you know, even in the abolitionist case, you had a number, you had a mix, right? It was a mix of, yeah. Uh, I mean, the British, who, the British Navy and empire played such a large role in, you know, abolishing a lot of slavery prior to the American abolitionism. And that in some ways is also a case for this kind of like working within the system and somewhat more moderate view. Right. Right. Messaging aside, you've got a big project writing this book and you're having to go through and research all of these different libertarians and present their views in a clear and accurate way. Um, and you seem to do a really good job doing that. I think I like, I understand where a lot of these people are coming from. So when I see you summarize them, uh, it's, it's always really nice to feel like, Oh yeah, this is, I can trust these summaries. Plus I know more or less where you're coming from and your, your style of libertarianism. I was a reader of the bleeding heart libertarian blog for a long time. So I know even when you're describing libertarians that you don't necessarily agree with, you're describing them accurately. Um, how, if at all, in going through this project, have your views changed as you've had to intensively research all of these different thinkers and describe their views in charitable terms? I think what, what changed for me was um, how I think about myself as a libertarian within this broad Broader libertarian movement, right? So we, you know, we make this distinction between you know, strict libertarians and, and classical liberals in the book um, as a way of sort of you know, you know carving up the broad libertarian universe. And, and I, I guess that was that was something I hadn't thought through as clearly uh, before I started writing the book. Uh, you know what what it is exactly that separates somebody like um, a Robert Nozick from a Milton Friedman. Uh, what are the epistemological differences? What are the moral differences? Um, uh, what are the kind of underlying philosophical methodologies that that lead them in different directions? Uh, so getting a clearer handle on that, I think maybe cemented in my view that I was more of a classical liberal than a strict libertarian. Um, I certainly started off as a strict libertarian. As I mentioned, you know, I came to libertarianism through Ayn Rand and was a was a big proponent of objectivism for, for a number of years. But I guess two things sort of happened along the way, both just in my, my readings and reflections generally, and then my research for this book, um, one of which was that I came to see the arguments for those positions, the positive arguments for those positions as weaker than I had previously assumed. Um, so the Lockean argument for property rights, for instance, I came to see problems with the, the labor mixing view, um, the, uh, you know, the sort of Rothbardian argument for, uh, a non-aggression principle as a kind of foundational principle of morality. And the idea that you could sort of move through this kind of neat deductive 
a series of steps from non-aggression to anarcho-capitalism. Uh, I came to see that as very superficial um, in, in many ways. So on the one hand, I'm starting to see weaknesses in, in the positive libertarian arguments. And on the other hand, I came to see serious challenges coming from non-libertarians. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, this is a function of my, my training in, in, in graduate school in philosophy, but you know, a lot of non-libertarian ar ar um, arguments would sort of put forward these ideas about social justice that seemed to me important in, in some ways, even if the details of the positions that these leftist thinkers were advocating often struck me as, as wrongheaded or implausible. There was nevertheless a, a core idea there that struck me as basically right. And, and I'll put the idea like this, right? So you know, people would ask me when I was defending my strident libertarian position, you know, what if you turned out to be wrong about the way in which this would all work out? Right. So you think individuals have this right to self-ownership and they have a right to free trade and all this stuff. And you think that if we respect those rights, societies would be prosperous and peaceful and cooperative and everything would work out pretty well. But what if they wouldn't? Right. What if it turned out that all the Marxist critiques of libertarianism are right and that a libertarian regime would actually lead to the impoverishment of the workers, right? Um, what if it would lead to you know, massive and growing gaps between the rich and poor? What if it would lead to exploitation and all these horrible things? Would you still hold to your libertarian principles if that turned out to be the case? And my answer was no, right? Like, you know, I do, I'm not a pure consequentialist. I don't think consequences are the only thing that matter, but like they matter. Um, and if I turned out to be completely wrong about all the consequences of libertarian institutions, that would lead me to rethink my principles. And I think if you if if you agree with that, then you're 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 on board for some conception of social justice. It might not be the Rawlsian one. It might not be uh, you know Brian Berry's or any particular theory, but you think some conception of social justice is important. Do you have any recommendations for a book that would especially complement this one? I've already recommended uh, John Tomasi's Free Market Fairness. I think uh, that's a, that's a great book. Um, Jason Brennan had a really nice book on um, on libertarianism uh, called like Libertarianism: What Everyone Needs to Know, uh, which is a nice kind of question and answer, easy read version of libertarian theory. Those two books are will kind of give you a, a nice account of the, you know, the bleeding heart libertarian approach to uh, libertarian theory that uh, that I find quite persuasive. Um, you know, if you want a, um, a, a more history, if you want a, 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 you know, a better understanding of the way in which libertarian, the way libertarian movement, for instance, looked uh, over the course of the 20th century, uh, then there's still no better book out there than Brian Doherty's uh, Radicals for Capitalism, which is I, I learned a lot from and, and cite many times in this book. More focused on America in the 20th century, but yeah, great book. And yeah, more more of an institutional history and, and right. a biographical history. Yours is more of an intellectual history. Yeah, exactly. You want to say anything about any upcoming projects you have or where people can find you if they want to keep up with you? Yeah, so I, I just uh, relaunched um, Bleeding Heart Libertarianism in a way um, as a kind of individual Substack. It was a guy to be kind of a bit of a headache running a big group blog with a bunch of academics. Uh, I bet. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm just I'm I'm trying it on my own now. Uh, so that's that's kind of an ongoing writing project. 
Uh, and then um, I've got a book coming out in July of this year, uh, which uh, listeners to this podcast are either going to love or hate uh, on the idea of a universal basic income guarantee. And uh, it's meant to be a serious look at both the pros and the cons of a universal basic income guarantee. And it's really, I think, written especially to show people who think the idea is crazy <laughs> that it's not as crazy as they think. Uh, so conservatives, um, you know, classical liberals, libertarians tend to, to look with a, a considerable degree of skepticism on UBI proposals. Um, I argue there that there's more to take seriously than a lot of people give it credit for. Uh, but there's also not as much there as people who are passionate, diehard advocates of the policy uh, tend to suppose. It's a weird policy. And it's, it's uh, and so just sociologically, it's a weird policy. Uh, there are a lot of like UBI fans who approach it with almost a kind of religious fervor uh, and view it as like the one policy that's going to remake our world and solve every social problem that's ever existed. And uh, I, I don't think it'll do that. Uh, I think there are some serious problems uh, with the policy, but I think it's a it's an interesting idea that's at least worth taking more seriously. So uh, hopefully that book will will convince uh, readers to do likewise. Awesome. And you're on Twitter as well. I am on Twitter as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, my guest today has been Matt Zwolinski and his book, once again, co-authored with John Tomasi is The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism. Thank you so much for joining me, Matt. Thanks for having me on, Chris. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.